USAA is proudly celebrating 100 years of serving the military community. It was a group of soldiers who launched USAA in 1922 by joining together to insure each other's vehicles when no one else would. Since then, USAA has grown to more than 13 million members strong. And through it all, one thing has remained. USAA is still serving the military community and their families. Find out more at USAA.com slash 100. And hot! Welcome to the Veterans Voice, presented by USAA. Veterans Voice is a service of Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center, originating from the Optum Podcast Studio in partnership with podcast channel sponsor, Medicare Mentors, technology partner, Colorado Computer Support, and supporting partner, the WireNut Home Services. Welcome back, listeners, to Veterans Voice Podcast, a podcast brought to you by Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center. Today on the show, we have Angela Walters from Greenbury Racing, also known as GBR. It's a nonprofit that started out here in, uh, from Fort Carson by some active duty Green Berets that I believe the purpose is to just get people back into competition therapy through just different ways of, of all different kinds of racing. Uh, Angela, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about GBR? Yeah, definitely. And thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah. I really appreciate being invited onto the podcast. Happy to talk about Green Beret Racing and anything else that comes up in conversation today. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Green Beret Racing is a nonprofit organization uh, designed to alleviate the financial constraints for active duty and veterans to basically go out and compete in whatever they want to compete in. So, we have athletes that go do motocross. Uh, racing. We have a big race in Las Vegas coming up in March, the Mint 400. Um, and, you know, Green Beret Racing puts a big team of people together and they fundraise for it and they send them off to basically um, use these outlets as therapy for, um, you know, as soldiers, as veterans, we all go through things in the military no matter who you are, what your job is, you carry those things with you uh, to the outside when you're mm -hmm. done. Um, and a lot of us struggle to find our place in the world after leaving the world of the military and the military family. And so Green Beret Racing is a really great organization for just bringing that community together in a different setting and providing a very specific outlet for people to um, channel all of that energy, all of that, um, whether it's grief, pain, trauma, uh, into something productive mm -hmm. and good for not only themselves, but for the rest of the people in their lives, right? Because we really can only give to the world what we have within ourselves. And if we only have pain and darkness, that's what we're going to give to the world. Yeah. Um, so Green Beret Racing's initiative is to uh, just provide that outlet for people. And they do everything from the motocross racing to jujitsu competitions to ultra marathons to um, mountaineering expeditions. Um, and it's just a really great way for you know, people to have something to work toward, yeah. a goal, purpose. A, a purpose. Yes, it is very much about finding meaning again, mm -hmm. finding purpose again, and having um, a constructive outlet for all of that rather than, you know, it's very easy to sit in our, in our hurts and our traumas and turn to bad habits like drugs, drinking alcohol, or drugs, yeah. right? Um, and just, you know, 
let a, let ourselves wallow in that. Um, and it's not good for us yeah. at the end of the day. It well, if just, you got a big race the next day, or like if you're a marathon runner and you got a race coming up in a month, and that's your purpose, and that's your 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 goal is to do really well in that. You're not going to be sitting there at night drinking if that's you know high on your priority list. Exactly, and it's about restructuring that priority list so that you're essentially putting yourself back on top, right, mm-hmm. and your own well-being and your own health because you do have to. Uh, you have to, it's a lifestyle change, right? You have to turn away from the bottle. You have to turn away from the substance and you have to turn towards taking care of yourself physically, getting stronger, getting faster, whatever it is that is going to fuel your success in whatever your endeavor is. Um, and it's never going to be the bad habits. It's going to be the good ones. And so it's about getting people back into that, those good habits, um, that fuel, a well-functioning life, mm-hmm. essentially, um, and there are lots of we have lots of different athletes athletes who do a lot of different things. When I first came on to help with the social media aspect of things, because I was a public affairs specialist in tenth group. Uh, and then 19th group. Well, I was a public affairs specialist in the Army, <laughs> mostly with 10th group. Most, um, most of your time with Special Forces. Yeah, most of my time was spent in the special operations community. Um, and, you know, that's a really interesting community to exist <laughs> in, <laughs> uh, especially for a, a young woman, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, it is a very type A uh, tough environment. And it is very, one of the things that stood out to me the most when I first arrived at 10th group was the work hard, play hard aspect of special forces, you know, and I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for me, I had joined the army enlisted in 2016 and my first duty station was actually South Korea. So I was there for a year and about six months into Korea, I said, I have to get out of the conventional <laughs> army. This is not it for me. Um, I was very lucky. I had an NCO who uh, helped me get a slot at 10th group. Um, so I went to airborne school and then I showed up at 10th group. And I, that was the environment that I wanted. I wanted to be around really high caliber soldiers doing really high caliber things. I wanted to be pushed outside of my comfort zone. I wanted to be, I wanted to learn and grow as a soldier and as a person. And I knew that, you know, doing it in special operations would be a very specific type of experience, but one that would, you know, harden me and, and teach me things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. Right. Um, but coming into this environment, you know, you see this work hard mentality in all of these guys around you and it is a very admirable and respectable quality that everybody has but it also it builds up this wall right mm-hmm. because there's a certain mission that everybody is responsible for and it requires compartmentalizing very human things again like... i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Being um, facetious. <laughs> <laughs> um, it requires compartmentalizing very human emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Like we get very used to putting our grief to the side so that we can continue the mission and carry on with what we're supposed to be doing. And while that is definitely necessary under certain circumstances, when it stays that way, it becomes destructive. I, uh, I've, and I've mentioned this, I, I do this a lot here, but I, I repeat things, but they, these are very valid points. They're very good things to talk about. But you know, being in a team room or being in a platoon and and constantly being around competition, constantly feeling like you have to show up to work at your best 
every day. And then you have to leave work feeling horrible because you don't feel like you did enough every day. And, and if you're not the best, you feel like, Crap. I always said that's really great qualities of a SF guy or a, you know infantry guy or you know, combat arms or anybody anybody horrible quality on the, in the civilian life <laughs> because you can't constantly just have that pressure and that pressure is eventually going to crush you and yeah that pressure will eventually crush you and it's you have to have these outlets you have to have something to look forward to whether it be you know we brought it up before like. Angie, our producer, loves knitting, and she knows so much about it. And that's her solace. That's her. That's that's what she does. You know, it could be something as simple as that art, but this racing thing really is so multifaceted because you have to be physically fit. You have to put your whole body into this. And so, people that come through these programs, and you know, Nick and I, Nick, who's the one who started Green Beret Racing, he helped start the Special Forces Foundation uh, back in 2016, and um, then went off and did that. It was just so cool to see him grow with the GBR and then all these people that were just attracted to it. And, and a lot of people really changed almost almost overnight. You know, like, and Nick's told me the stories about going up to someone like, hey, let's go race. And I heard you like to mountain bike. Uh, like, oh, I don't have a bike. Got you a bike. Uh, well, I don't have gear. Got you gear. Well, I don't have the money for the entry fee for the race. I got that too. No excuses. Let's go. And the person's on a bike in a week. Awesome. I mean, just a phenomenal construct. You know, we you guys call it Greenberry. This is one point I did wanted to make with this because we tend, do tend to have a, a good amount of special forces on here because Taylor and I were special forces. And Greenberry racing is geared towards Green Berets, obviously being Greenberry racing. Um, but the idea is not solely for Green Berets, right. right? This idea of getting out there and getting beyond your problems with with purpose and with competition and with fitness and with all these things that are available to you that idea is is universal it goes around you know so really really awesome what you guys are doing um so what what brought you into this space How, what what got you did nick did nick seek you out as a pao i'm he assuming did, actually <laughs> yeah um he was looking for just someone to come on and help with the social media stuff because, you know, he's still active duty, so mm -hmm. he's got a lot on his plate. Um, very busy person. <laughs> yes, very busy per person. Um, and he would kill me for saying this, but he needs more help. <laughs> um, and, you know, as the, as the organization develops, it, you know, it's constantly growing and um, evolving to be what it is. Um, I'm sure that you know, it's just going to keep going in that direction. Yeah. Um, but a couple of years ago, he had um, just kind of found me through the grapevine. Somebody mm -hmm. gave him my name. Um, and at the time, I was off active duty. Uh, I was in, in the National Guard, um, in school full time, working a couple of jobs. But I was like, yeah, this is, you know, this is a really great I would love to volunteer my time, whatever time I can for mm. it uh, to help out with this, because especially as it revolves around mental health, that is such a it's such a hugely important thing Huge. that goes especially overlooked in the military, but especially mm -hmm. in special operations. Right. And um, mental health, you know, when it comes to suicide, depression, anxiety, uh, it hits very close to home. My oldest brother killed himself when I was 12. And Sorry, so, yeah. 
Yeah. And that's something that stays with you forever. You yeah. know, that'll always be part of my story. It'll always be part of who I am. Um, and it sucks. And mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to have to go through that kind of grief. And I don't want anybody to have, you don't want anyone to be in that position where they think that that's the only option that yeah. they have. Right. Um, and so many people, especially in special operations, do find themselves in that position. And, you know, if you, you just look at the statistics and in U.S. special operations, military-wide, not just Army, I think the statistic is something like five times more suicides than both the conventional Army and the civilian world. I believe it's 30% of all DOD suicides are special operations. Yeah, and that's a huge number. Huge number. Considering, considering that special per, operations... Like, like 5%, I yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> something like a really, really yeah. you know, small percentage bad. of the overall. And so you really have to ask yourself, and it's something that I've been thinking about for the last few years, um, You know, even when I was still active duty, you have to really think to yourself, well, why is this happening? Why is this affecting this community specifically over these other communities? And I think what it largely comes down to is just this soft mentality of compartmentalization and being, it's, you know, not to throw this phrase out there, but it's this kind of toxic masculinity of, well, I'm, I'm a man and I don't need to feel my feelings. I don't, I'm a man. I don't have feelings, you know? And it's like, I can't show them because I have to be the strong one in the room. Right. And showing any kind of emotion is vulnerability. It's and you a, cannot it's, show vulnerability in a team room. No, I will tell no. you, you will be taken out. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. You know, emotions are a weakness. And, mm-hmm. Absolutely. you know, to a certain extent, under certain circumstances, emotions can be a weakness, right? Absolutely. Because when you're on mission, when you're in combat, you have to, you have to focus. You and I think actually this was on the episode that I was listening to with uh, Taylor and with Chris. Um, in under those really high risk, high intense situations, stress and anxiety affect your decision making, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to essentially get into a medita- meditative state of relaxation so that you can make wise decisions under high risk and in, in high risk environments. Every time before I left for Afghanistan, uh, about a month out, my brain shut off. And my wife used to get so upset. She's like, you're leaving in a month and you are showing zero emotion. You're showing zero love. And I, I, only thing I could tell her is I can't help it. I don't know. I'm, I'm about to go do this thing and my brain does this on its own. And so, and then it takes about a good month or two for that to turn off once I get back home too. It's that decompression time. Right. And so, yeah, that compartmentalize, it's just, it's born into us. Right. Well, it's a survival mode mm-hmm. thing too, right? Cause you're going into a situation where your survival is on the line, mm-hmm. right? And it's an instinctual human thing to protect ourselves. Yeah. And part of that is, you know, our brain rewires itself to shut out those emotions and keep the focus on survival, survival, survival. But when we come back from those situations or when we're not in those situations and we're no longer thinking, having to think about those, about survival in those terms, you have to recognize, you have to come back down and yeah. realize that you are a human being. Yes. You might be a man, you might be the toughest man, you might be this big bad Green Beret who's you know, great at shooting and surviving and yeah. doing all sorts of high risk things, but you're still a human being you and take care all, of mental health. yeah. And all human beings at the end of the day need love, support, empathy, compassion, and communication. communication. <laughs> yeah. You have Trust. to have 
all of those things, right? And you have to have an outlet, not only to receive those things, but to give them in turn, because you give what you receive in this life. That is, that is just a fundamental law of the universe. Right. Um, and so when we, when we can't unlearn these notions of big, bad toughness without emotion, and we take that back into our civilian lives, it destroys us in the end. Well, it's, it's going to come out eventually. It's going to come out. And, 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 and that's, tell you, that's what happened to me. Um, it was the, 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 the pot finally boiling over. After pushing everything down and pushing everything down, I almost had a heart attack. I uh, had a bad EKG, um, sent me to the ER, everything, and it just ended up being a full-on panic attack that wow. if I did not get seen, I could have potentially put myself into a heart attack. I have high blood pressure, all the, all the things that all of us, you know, that we have. And, uh, and so like I said, like I said, it's going to come out. Optum Colorado. Veterans Voice is produced in the Optum Podcast Studio. Optum Colorado and Mountain View Medical Group, part of Optum, offer 20 clinics throughout the Pikes Peak region. Their primary and specialty care doctors provide quality patient-centered care backed by Optum's industry-leading health services and technology. Optum is dedicated to helping our community live healthier while keeping care affordable. Visit OptumCare.com slash Colorado to learn more and schedule your appointment today. Medicare Mentors. When it's time to consider your Medicare options, it's time to talk with Medicare Mentors. Medicare Mentors, powered by Spark, is veteran-owned, a long-standing Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center partner and the Veterans Voice podcast channel provider. More than that, they go above and beyond to make sure that when you need them, they're there lending a helping hand. Medicare Mentors, powered by Spark, always above and beyond. Visit MedicareMentorsLLC.com for more information. All right. All right, we're back here with uh, Angela Walter with Greenberry Racing, GBR. Uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. Um, awesome what you guys are doing. Uh, you know, we're going down the mental health path and, and how all this stuff's just eventually going to come out, all this compartmentalization, everything that, all of our trauma, all the, the stuff that we've been through, it's still sitting inside of us, right? And it's going to come out. And, it's, and if you don't let it come out in a healthy way, it's going to come out in a nasty way. And so that's really cool about the, the competition thing for you is because that is a way to just go in there and try your best and let out some aggression. <laughs> Let's be honest, because competition yeah. is to me pent up aggression. So yeah, definitely. So it's awesome with what you guys are doing. What do you guys have coming up? What's your next big thing coming up? So this year, I, I mentioned we have the Mint 400 in Las Vegas okay. happening in March. Uh, it's a big motocross race. Um, we have several athletes competing uh, in that. And then we also have um, a big project happening this summer starting in June called 14 Peaks in 14 Weeks. Wow. Um, it <laughs> Don't is, sign me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you want to sign up. <laughs> I would do it oh. some other competition. <laughs> <laughs> so it is uh, <clears throat> one of Nick's fairy dust brainchilds uh, to get <laughs> um, open up a open up Green Beret racing to you know the community and have anyone and everyone who wants to participate in the in these events great so uh, that, this one's not just for Green Berets so this is not this is for you hear anyone that, and everyone everybody out there yes. come out there and compete against some Green Berets <laughs> yeah and it's like and and for you know Green Beret racing does have a lot of comp, uh, competitive aspects to it too but a lot of it is competing with yourself right competing mm-hmm. with the form the self that you were yesterday, the self that you were this morning to, to push yourself to be better. Right. Um, and that is, uh, with 
you know, if you've ever climbed a Colorado 14er, it is very much nope. a competition <laughs> with yourself. yourself yes. Yeah, and imagine. with your own mind. Um, cause they are long, they are hard, the air is thin. Um, and sometimes it takes days mm -hmm. to get it done. And it really, it comes down to, and one of the reasons I love mountaineering and mountain climbing uh, so much personally is because it is very much about your relationship with yourself and the voice in your head that is telling you whether or not you can do it. Mm -hmm. Because essentially it is one foot in front of the other, yeah. which we have all learned applies to basic training. Every, you know, yeah. Everybody, you know, it's that, that mental toughness. Right. That voice in your head that tells you to keep going even when you think that you cannot. And that is, you know, climbing 14ers is very much about that one, one foot in front of the other. So 14 peaks in 14 weeks is um, we're climbing one 14er. Some of them are twosies, um, mm -hmm. like Grays and Tories or Democrat and Cameron. Um, but one 14er objective a week for two and a half straight months. And so we have, we'll be starting from the Springs. We've got some, uh, vans that we're going to pile into, and then we're going to go to the trailhead and we're going to all climb a 14er together and take some pictures, hate it, love it, <laughs> you know, suffer, see suffer the beauty. Together. Yeah. See the some beauty, of my best the friends have been made through suffering. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. There is nothing quite like suffering that can bring people together. Um, that is for sure. And so this initiative is for, again, anyone who wants to be a part of it, to come out and be part of the Greenbury Racing Team this summer, to push yourselves. Um, How does someone sign up for it? Uh, so you can go, you can go check out the details on any of the Greenbury Racing social media sites, uh, as, well of our, as well as the website, uh, greenburyracing.org. But regular updates are going to be coming out like as the okay. weeks unfold and we'll be like, hey, we're doing this peak this week. You know, be here at this time. Um, probably sign up here and okay. so that we know who's coming, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Um, that all kind of came out of... Uh, so when I first came on with Greenbury Racing... Uh, Jason Howell was climbing Mount Everest in the spring of 2022. Jason Howell is uh, the NCOIC of SOAMS, the mountaineering school at Fort oh, yeah. Carson. Yep. Um, he's a fifth, third group guy. He's a fifth group. I, fifth group guy. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember either. I'm sorry, Jason. <laughs> um, I should know. I just spent a lot of time with him. I should know. That. Um, but he, so he climbed Everest um, that year, and it was it was something that he was already doing. But then it kind of came up in conversation with him and Nick, and Nick said, "Hey, I really want to help you out with this." Um, so it became, you know, at least part of partly a Green Beret Racing um, initiative to get a Jason to this peak. And his goal was to climb Everest without any supplemental oxygen, Ooh. which is something that less than 200 people in have history ever have ever done. Yeah. Most of those most people have been, have been Nepalese exactly. people, yeah. um, you know, people who have actually evolved to live at high altitudes. <laughs> they live um, at base camp already. Yeah, exactly. they're already living at 70 to 20, 17 to 20,000 feet. That's wild. Yeah. Um, so Jason made it to 28,500 feet about just under 600 feet from the summit oh, without oxygen wow. um, before. Amazing. Yeah. Incredible. Um, really. Jason is just a monster athlete. I mean, he's a really impressive person and a really great guy too. Just very humble. He yeah. would kill me for Bringing talking this all about up. him right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, he, 
he didn't quite make his goal, right? Mm-hmm. He wanted to make, reach the summit but without oxygen. <laughs> but like, pretty you have feet. to hats off to him, right? <laughs> like, it was still an incredible accomplishment, and probably less than 300 people have made it to that altitude without oxygen. Um, but you know, Jason, a Green Beret, he had a goal and he didn't quite reach that goal, and so sure he's it's going like, back. <laughs> yeah, right. And he does want it. He wants to go back to Everest one day. But then it came to him with um, the idea to put a team together to climb Denali last year, um, this past June. And for you know, for Jason, that was the next thing. It's like, okay, Everest is in the past. This Denali is the next thing. It's you know, we're going to get to work on that. Um, so he put a team together. There were originally six, uh, dropped down to four, and he had asked. I guess he heard about my reputation at Tenth Group. I did a lot of. Uh, every year, I, I was out with the Water Warfare Detachment on all of their trainings. Um, did a lot of stuff with other mountain teams and a little bit with SOAM. So I had a decent amount of ex- mountaineering experience under my belt. Not anything like Jason's, of course, um, but he really wanted me to come along and tell the story and take the pictures and, you know, kind of be the team's photographer for that expedition. And so that was last October when he asked me to do that. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, I've never climbed more than 14,000 feet. And I had actually just started climbing 14ers uh, the summer before. So I had only gone to 14,000 feet like a few months before he asked me if and I Denali's wanted to climb the, Denali. 20,320 20, feet. Wow. Yeah. And because of its latitude on the planet, uh, it's considered it's largely considered one of the hardest of the seven summits of the world because the air is so thin, the wow. atmosphere is so thin. Okay. So to kind of put put it, put it into perspective in Colorado, the tree line ends mm-hmm. at 12,000 feet, which is where there's not enough oxygen in yeah. the air for the trees to keep growing in Alaska the tree line ends at 3,000 feet yeah spent some time in Norway spent some time in Norway the same thing it's like like, oh, look at that huge mountain, man, that's really tall. And they're like, oh, wait, why does the tree line stop so short? Because <laughs> there's no oxygen. Because there's no oxygen up there. Yeah. yeah. So that much less oxygen for trees, mm-hmm. that much less oxygen for climbers, right? Absolutely. Um, so the final team ended up being Jason, two other guy, two other soft mountaineers at uh, the Special Operations Mountaineering School, and then myself. Wow. Um, which was an intimidating position to be in, <laughs> to say sure. the least. Um, and then... About a month later, my best friend was killed in a car accident, and uh, Sydney was her name. She was the best. I have to say that. Hmm. Um, Sorry and to hear that. So for me, that really threw a wrench into things, hmm. and it was, I mean, it's it's still hard. Um, but those first few months, especially, were, of dealing with that grief, were incredibly difficult. And I was also a full time college student going into my last semester of school. Um, so I was dealing with a lot, trying yeah. to juggle a lot. And to be honest, I, I even now kind of wish that we had pushed the expedition a year because I think I would have been much better prepared for it. Because um, under the circumstances that I was dealing with at the time, it was it was just really difficult for me to navigate my depression yeah. and, and focus on training and focus on yeah. training. And you know, I, it was I just had very little motivation to well, like get into time. the gym. And it, yeah, grief definitely it takes time. You, you have know? to allow yourself that time too. Yeah, and I like I lost my appetite. I wasn't I I ate maybe a meal every other day, if that. You know, it was very difficult yeah. to get through that. But at the same time, I, it's, if I hadn't had 
Denali to focus on, Denali to be a goal, something, you know, mm-hmm. for that to ground me. I don't know how navigating that grief would have gone. Could've, I mean, you could have succumbed to it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's that's the, again, going back to that purpose and that drive of, and, you know, what you guys are doing at, with, at GBR is that's, that's a really good, like, I guess, analogy for lack of a better term for that of like, okay, I'm in a really, really bad spot right now, but I still have this goal that I still need to pull my pull my pants up and go do. Right. I got something to, I got I got something to work for every single day. Yes, you need to grieve. Yes, you need to take that time for yourself. But I think and I, and I could be wrong with this. I'm not an expert, but like adding that that goal in there can can like I don't know if that's adding to the compartmentalization of the grief of saying, "Hey, I can deal with that later. Let's focus on this," or it works hand in hand. You know what I mean? With helping out with like, okay, I'm really sad, but I do have this to do. And I want to prove to myself that I can do that and, 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 you know, prove to Sydney that you can do it too. I'm sure that was in the back of your mind too, of like, Hey, let's get out there and and do this. So, you know, chicken and egg thing, who knows what it is, but you know, I think that's really important, but sorry, go ahead. No, I think it really comes down to, you know, how you're willing to address it, how you're Mm -hmm. willing to attack it. And for me, I've learned over the years that, grief is not something to run away from it's and it's not something that you can conquer either it's Mm. it's just something that you have to learn how to accept and you have to learn how to feel it in the time because it comes in waves you know um and the waves are very strong in the beginning and they you know for me it it took several months really for the waves to kind of ebb into something a little bit gentler. Um, and I had to learn how to hold grace with myself in moments where it was like, okay, I know I need to go to the gym today. I know I need to get at least this done. Um, but I just can't because I'm so, I'm too sad. Like I just, I just can't. And instead of beating myself up for that, I, I just let myself feel my feelings, you know, I let myself be sad. I let myself stay home from the gym. And did that cost me on the expedition? For sure. Yeah. Um, did it help me process my grief? (laughs) For sure. You know, what's the the longer game is definitely the grief. Yeah. And I had even told, you know, it was February. Uh, I told, I had a conversation with Jason. I said, I'm, I'm not sure that I can do this this year. Like I'm really struggling. Um, I can probably give you 14,000 feet, but I'm really not sure I'm going to make it above that. You know, I'm really, I I just don't know. But Jason had a really good way of kind of walking me back from the ledge. Um, He was very supportive throughout, you know, throughout those months leading up to the expedition, um, which I'm very thankful for because I think it's very easy for, um, you know, for guys with his background, guys with your guys' background to kind of say, Hey, toughen up kid, you know, like get through it, compartmentalize, (laughs) like focus on the mission. Um, but he really didn't, you know, he, he held a lot of grace with me. Um, and you know, fast forward to the expedition itself and man, Denali is a tough mountain. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, tell us about, tell us that story. That's amazing. Yeah. So, um, It, it turned out to be one of the worst weather years on the mountain and on record, of course, course. you know, (laughs) just our luck. Um, for the first time in 30 years, one of the, um, the Talkeetna air taxi, which is one of two main air taxis that get people to base camp because you Mm -hmm. have to fly, uh, in, on a glacier plane, in a glacier plane to base camp at 7,200 feet. 
um, they had to ground a pilot for the first time in 30 years at base camp because of a storm. Um, then you the, were up there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the record for for average snowfall on the mountain in June was broken by the 12th, halfway through our expedition. Oh, my God. Um, so it was just constant, constant snow, constant whiteouts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just, it was pretty brutal. And I also struggle with Raynaud's syndrome, which is a cold, it's a cold weather phenomenon. It affects females more than males. Nobody really knows why. Um, there are some... You know, some doctors say that it's because, you know, the female has the we give birth. So yeah. our bodies have to protect, you know, our reproductive system. And so it sucks the blood in a lot. Easier. Yes. Yeah. So in the cold, what my body thinks it's dying if it's less than 50 <laughs> degrees and it calls. All that the, was most that was my wife, too. I think. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, there are. No, I'm joking. Well, <laughs> I mean, she could have it. Um, but my body calls, you know, brings all of the, the blood to my vital organs and it mm -hmm. takes the blood out of my hands and my feet. Um, and you see people with Raynaud's syndrome, they'll, their hands will turn stark white because there's no blood. Makes us a lot more prone to frostbite, frostbite um, cold weather injuries. I got chillblains in all of my toes in 2020 Oof. out on uh, a training for, with the Winter Warfare Detachment, which was super painful. Yeah. Um, and I have nerve damage now in all of my fingers and toes, too, because of all the training that I did. Stop with doing these crew. things. I know, right? <laughs> well, people keep asking me to go climb mountains. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to say no. You're going to you lose your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... <laughs> um, on, on the expedition, we had made a push to, we set in a cache at 14,000 feet, skied back down to 11 camp, which was really awesome. Cause most people who go do Denali do it on snowshoes. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people will ski the whole thing. Um, so, you know, skiing down from 14,000 feet around windy corner was like pretty cool. Few people. Yeah. <laughs> really do that, which is really cool. Um, but then, you know, we took a rest day after that. And then the day after that, we were trying to push the rest of our camp up. And it was an, we were doing an independent expedition, right, all by ourselves. So I stepped onto the mountain with 130 pounds of gear. I only weigh 150 pounds. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it was brutal, brutal. I've, and I, to be candid, I had never carried that, that much, much weight let before. Let alone walking up a huge, let alone, yeah, for sure. Um, in like whiteout, constant whiteout storms. You're listening to The Veteran's Voice, presented by USAA in partnership with Optum, Medicare Mentors, Colorado Computer Support, and the Wirenut Home Services. So on that push, we didn't get, you know, we pushed for maybe an hour or two and I hadn't felt my toes in several hours and I had been struggling the whole time keeping my toes and my fingers warm, but definitely my toes. Um, cause we were, you know, we were in our ski boots. So I lived in my ski boots for 11 days Blasted. on the mountain. Yeah. And, um, and I finally was just like, I, I, I can't, you know, this is, I'm in pain because with my nerve damage too, mm -hmm. it's like, it gets cold and it gets numb, but it's a painful, yeah. really painful it kind of like numb. feels like a blowtorch. Yeah. I, it's like I've a- I've gotten frostbite and it's like, when that, when it oh, falls out, it's like- It's horrible. feels like a blowtorch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it took a, I, it took a whole week after leaving the mountain for my, my toes to, to come back. And when they did, I felt- the blood like come back into my toes and yeah. they just burned, burned and itched for like several minutes. And I was just like hunched <sighs> over, you know, and 
So, um, and I had also deal, had been dealing with a little bit of acute mountain sickness too, because mm-hmm. the air was air. just so thin, um, you know, some headaches and nausea too. And, um, I also was very unlucky with mother nature's gift to us female bodies oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the very first day that we stepped on the oh, mountain. No. Uh, yeah. So I was just like, it was, I Cards had stacked a against you. rough go. Yeah. But you made it how far? I made it to 14. That's awesome. Yeah, I made it to 14. I spent 11 days on the mountain, um, <sighs> which was, you know, I had spent some days outside with the winter guys when I was active duty. You mm-hmm. know, the coldest night that I had slept outside with them was like negative 30 degrees. Uh, and that's what triggered my rain odds, actually, because oh, that was our yeah. very first training. Okay. Um, and so, like... To go from, you know, some onesies, twosies nights outside in the snow to 10 straight nights out in the snow. It was, wow. you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was a big feat. I was proud of myself, you know, um, for trying. Mm-hmm. I did my best. Um, and ultimately what it came down to is, you know, these, you, when it comes to mountaineering, especially it is, there are so many variables that you're not in control of. Yeah. And so you have to make wise decisions because your life depends on the decisions that you make Mm -hmm. and so do the lives of your team members right and so after we had come back down from 11 camp um i spent like the rest of the day in a sleeping bag trying to get my toes warm and like trying to get rid of my nausea and my headaches and i hadn't eaten a whole meal since being on the mountain because i was just like my whole body was just really struggling and so we made the decision the next day for jason to bring me off the mountain while bobby and wade pushed on and it took Jason and I a couple of days because we had to wait about 24 hours for a break in the weather. Um, we finally got it. It lasted like 10 seconds. <laughs> and we were like, Jason's like, you know, screw it. Let's just go. We'll send it. <laughs> um, we start going down the mountain and it's very quickly. We're just engulfed in this whiteout storm. I had to keep if, if Jason was more than 25 meters in front of me, I lost sight of him completely. Um, and, you know, we're navigating like three, four feet of fresh powder um, with, I've got 125 pounds in tow between a sled and my pack. Um, We're going over crevasse terrain um, in a whiteout storm. And we made it down to about 9,000 feet from 11,000. And finally, just like, this is too dangerous and somebody's going to get hurt. We can't see anything. We're like, trying to ski through this whiteout storm and you can't even distinguish the ground from the sky. And the only way I knew if we were going up or down or flat was because that's, you know, my skis were telling me what the terrain was like. We did so many 180 turns. Jason's looking at, you know, his, his Gaia trying to figure out where the hell we are on the mountain. Finally, we just bedded down and we uh, pitched camp, you know, dug a really deep hole in the snow. Um, and, in the course of like less than 18 hours, over seven feet of snow fell on top of us. Wow. Yeah. And so there was, that was so much of being on Tenali was just shuffling snow <laughs> off of our tents. <laughs> did, you buy, just, did you buy a snowblower when you got back so you don't have to shovel your yeah, driveway anymore? Exactly. <laughs> like if I never see any snow again. No. Um, so we like woke up the next morning and we had about three inches uh, at the top of our tent where the vents were before the snow would have buried us alive essentially um so that was that was pretty intense but eventually we did make it down to base camp um safe and sound and i got on a plane a couple of days after that and left the mountain and jason made a solo push from base camp all the way to fourteen thousand feet to meet back up with bobby and wade (laughs) 
<laughs> animal. <laughs> that is insane. It was, yeah. So he moved for about 10, 10 and a half hours um, through whiteout conditions, 60 plus mile an hour winds, sub-zero temperatures. Uh, he actually ended up getting some minor frostbite on a couple of his fingers by the time he reached 14,000 feet. Uh, during that time, Bobby and Wade had made a couple of acclimatization climbs Ooh. up to... <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully I said that right. Um, up to about 17,000 feet. And then Jason made another... After a rest day at 14,000 feet, he went up to 17,000. Um, and then Bobby and Wade were going to push for the summit, and they made it to about 18,200 feet. Uh, so a little... You know, about 2,000 feet from the summit, just engulfed in a whiteout storm, couldn't see anything, um, had to turn around, head back to camp. And there was, with no weather window in sight, the the guys made the decision to head back down the mountain. Call it. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, Smart. I think a wise decision. Yeah. yeah. So they ended up, they were on the mountain for 15 days. So, you know, just a few more days What's than like a, me. What was like the total amount of feet climbed. I mean, going up and down, acclimat acclimating yourself. And I mean, there has to be, because obviously it's more than 20,000 feet. Yeah. So I, I mean, I only did a, I guess like seven, um, a little more than seven. I, for Bobby and Wade, total feet climbed seven plus like six. I mean, they climbed between the three of them, they, you know, 15,000 wow. vertical feet each-ish. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. All right, so here's my question for you with this, and this uh, bringing this into the resiliency portion of what we're talking about and the Green Beret Racing Mission Statement, um, helping through competition. Where was your head at with Sydney, one, before this, during, and after? Did it help you with your grieving process? Did it did it help you mentally? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. Yeah, I honestly, I would say so. Mm. Yes, it was, you know, a very daunting challenge mm. under any circumstances. Um, and I think dealing with the grief of losing Sydney while training for Denali, it helped me, it helped me channel some of that grief, right, into, yeah. into this outlet, into this goal. Um, and when I was actually on the mountain, I remember a couple of times asking Sydney for help yeah. like hey Sid I don't know if you're listening but can you like get behind my sled and push it or yeah, something yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure. um, just kind of watch out watch out for me and then you know afterward there was there were a lot of emotions to reconcile after the climb because you know I spent so many months um, trying my best to be as well prepared for the expedition as possible and honestly my goal was 14,000 feet because and I was candid with Jason about that months mm -hmm. before. Um, but there is still that bitter taste in your mouth. Like, wow, I went, I, yeah. I went through all of this. And, you know, what if I had done this differently? What if I had done that differently? Could I have made it farther? Um, but ultimately, what I, what I realized, what I came to realize was that I did my best under the yeah. circumstances that I was given. And I made wise decisions, both yeah. for myself and for my team. Because I think if I had tried to continue uh, from the point that you know it was time to turn around, I would have gotten injured. And I could have very seriously put my teammates in danger yeah. because of that. So um, The A-type personality, I will tell you, that one very, very rampant in the soft community. Um, but that A-type personality 
whether you would have made it to 20 or 14, guess what would have still been there? What if? Every time, because we could have done it faster. We could have done it shorter. We could have, you know, I could have made it further. You know, the, the, those what ifs, always going to be there. Because that's sure. just who we are. That's just an A-type. You're an A-type personality, if I can tell. <laughs> that, um, but you always want something better. You're always looking. I always want to be better. You know. So I always tell people, like, hey, you did a great job. And as long as you can walk away saying, you know, I tried my butt off. And I tried as hard as I could. And this is what happened. I think that that's what you did is phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you. And at the end of the day too, it's, it really isn't so much about the summit as it is the journey itself. I think Miley Cyrus said it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the climb. Start singing it. <laughs> yes. Are you going to sing from us, Paul? <laughs> Love me some Miley. <laughs> uh, I mean, as cheesy and cliche as that sounds, as, it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's 100%. It true. is 100% because no matter no matter the outcome of any situation, you will always learn something from it if you are open and willing to learn. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had gained way more than I expected to in the beginning throughout the entire journey, right? Because the journey started when Jason asked me to do it. Mm-hmm. And I spent months with him and with our other two teammates and several of the other SOAMs guys. Skiing, backcountry skiing, climbing, crevasse rescue techniques. I was learning a lot throughout that entire process. You know, summit of Denali or no, I still have all of that under my belt, right? And it was a really great lesson, too, again, in wise decision making. And Mm -hmm. um, something I've been reflecting on a lot, especially in the last year, is this idea of freedom, right? And especially when we think about, like, all of the contemporary issues that we're having in our society today, which are too many to talk about, you know, in one sitting. Um, America itself, like the ideology of America, rests largely on this idea of freedom. And I don't think that enough of us actually stop to consider what we really mean when we talk about freedom. And the conclusion that I've come to is that freedom is about choice. Mm-hmm. The more choices you have, the more freedom you have. That's what makes democracy so great, right? It's because democracy gives us choices, Mm -hmm. you know, and we could argue all day about whether or not we really realize (laughs) that uh, in our own society. But, you know, even in our everyday normal lives, um, the choices that we have under any circumstances are the freedoms that we have to do with those circumstances, what we're going to do. And the decisions that I made on Denali to come back down when I had, if I had made a different decision, I could have lost my toes. I could have lost my life. Mm -hmm. And that would have, you know, then I would have no choices or freedoms for anything, right? (laughs) If I had lost my toes, now I have significantly less choices and significantly less freedoms than I do with all of my toes. And that goes with any situation in any area of life. And ultimately, no matter what the circumstances are, you always have the choice to how you are going to react to those circumstances. And you can always choose to react in productive ways or destructive ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think, you know, a big thing with Green Beret Racing is giving this outlet to people to make constructive choices for themselves because that's that's where freedom really lies. And when you make the more constructive choices that you make, the better choices that you make, the more choices that you're going to eventually come Mm. in to have, the more freedom you're going to have. 
Um, Building those those disciplines in there is right. really important. Purpose and discipline. Purpose and discipline, for sure. And I think another big part of it, too, is, you know, finding yourself, mm-hmm. right? And finding, because I think suffering is an inherent part of life. And it's a necessary part yeah. of life. You don't suffer, you don't learn. Exactly. <laughs> Suffering is one of the greatest teachers that we have. Absolutely. And it teaches us who we are. And when we are in times of great grief, of great pain, great trauma, great suffering, the choices that we make in those in that under those circumstances, that shows us who who we are. Mm-hmm. And we don't always make the best decisions. And those decisions, each choi- each decision that we make, each action that we take, even the smallest actions that we take in our everyday lives have a ripple effect into the entirety of everything else, like a pebble dropping into a pond, right? Mm-hmm. And it aff- and we think that, you know, when we're making a decision, we think maybe it'll only affect us, but this isn't true. And that's what I think, you know, this to kind of bring the idea of freedom into a larger philosophical concept is individual freedom isn't, there's really no such thing as individual freedom, right? Because the actions, actions have consequences that affect other people. And so when you make decisions that hurt others, you are taking, you are manipulating the decisions that they can then make from that place. Hurt people hurt mm-hmm. other people. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's essentially the source of all the world's problems, all the world's suffering right there. Yeah. And so when we can learn how to, and something else I've been reflecting on, especially lately, is pain, right? And each of us has pain. Each of us suffers. Each of us grieves. We're all human beings. We all feel those yeah. things. It's part of being human. But you can't run from your pain and you can't conquer it either. Your pain is part of who you are. Absolutely. It is. It it is part of what makes you. Your trauma is your trauma. Exactly. It's part of what makes you the person that you are today. And so when it comes to pain, I've learned that it's really about accepting it and -hmm. accepting it as part of you that allows you to harness it in a way that becomes productive and good rather than destructive and evil. Yeah. Because a lot of people, and I've experienced this very personally and, you know, in the wake of losing Sydney, for example, a lot of people will sit in their grief, they'll hide behind their grief and they will use it as moral justification mm-hmm. for being terrible yeah. human beings. Let it identify you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people do that. You know, there's a way to, to deal with grief and there's a way to deal with trauma. Um, but dealing with it is way different than identifying with it, you know, cause if you identify, I identify as the person that, you know, went through this and blah, 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 then you're going to let it take you over. And that's not healthy. Right. That's not healthy. But if you get it forward then you, you and deal with it, then you can make it a learning point point of your life. Colorado computer support. Imagine never having to worry about your information systems ever again. Colorado computer support, the exclusive veterans voice technology partner, meeting all of our computing needs. Colorado Computer Support is veteran-owned. They're your team for innovative, collaborative IT services and solutions to enhance and support your Colorado business. When you need IT services to keep your business going, make sure the Colorado Computer Support team is on your team. Call 719-355-2440 to learn more. That's 719-355-2440. Wirenut Home Services. Every season brings a new strain on your home systems. Veterans Voice Partner, the WireNut Home Services, is the company you can count on to handle your heating, cooling, and electrical needs. 
They're family-owned, proud to employ honest, hardworking Coloradans. When you need plumbing, heating, cooling, or electrical help, the Wire Nut does that. Call 719-399-5021. That's 719-399-5021. Um, yeah, so so dealing with that, dealing with your grief and dealing with your pain is, is highly, highly, highly important. Um, and I think that's just such an awesome part of GBR and and all these people that are coming to GBR all have issues. Yeah. Well, everyone has issues, but they're all working towards a goal and they're all working together to heal together. Uh, GBR. So we've partnered, the special forces foundation has partnered with GBR a long time ago. And it's kind of that handshake of, um, okay, we are going to try to get to the problem before it turns into an emergency. Right. And this is a conversation Nick and I had is GBR. You guys, Offer these outlets, these these alternative therapies via sport and competition, racing, um, to give these people that pur- purpose before it turns into an emergency, before it turns into a t- traumatic event. But uh, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the, the people don't take the bait. And sometimes it does come to that point where, oh, man, I really need the next level of care. I actually need care. I need someone to help me. A professional, and that's where I think GBR will have a, you guys have a bunch of resources, i.e., the, the Special Forces Foundation and, and plus some Care Coalition, and there's a bunch of things out there that you guys now, once it gets to that point, now you you're they're in the fold, they're on the team, and you guys can recognize it, and it's easier to recognize it once you've seen it one time, two times, three times, hundred times. It gets easier and easier to recognize it. So then, bam! Now you guys can push out those resources. So. Mm-hmm. Just how multifaceted it is. I you know I keep repeating that word, but it, I think that's what's really important with GBR, and and mm-hmm. it, it helps you with your journey. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I think another thing too is, you know, and it's it's not this idea that like oh you just need to go out and and race on motorbikes or go run ultra marathons and then you'll be cured. That's <laughs> not you know that's not how it works. It's not intended to replace you know, seeking professional help because mm-hmm. therapy is great for everybody. everybody. You know, everybody say, go to therapy. Yeah, everybody go to therapy. Please go to therapy. <laughs> right? Like you go to the gym to make your to make your muscle stronger, to condition your cardiovascular system. You go to therapy to make your mental and emotional state stronger. It's yeah. just another way of taking Tools care of yourself. Tools for the toolbox. Yourself. Exactly. Tools for the toolbox. And you know, that's part of part of that what makes therapy great too. And and really this community that Green Beret Racing uh, has has put together, right, has given a home to is nobody lives this life alone. No. You can't. Somebody said it in here. I can't remember who it was. I think it was uh, Bryson Preddy. He said, uh, you're not going to walk down uh, middle of Baghdad by yourself, are you? You're not going to walk down Kabul by yourself. Don't do the battle alone. Exactly. Because this path, I've said this the last four episodes, the, the path that most of these people are down, you're not breaking brush. It is beaten to a pulp. This path is beaten to the pulp. Yes, people may have gotten their trauma through different ways, but these feelings and these emotions and this compartmentalization is a path that is beaten to a pulp. And you can. there's a bunch of hands out there holding out for you to grab. Yes. Yes. And you should. You should mm-hmm. grab them. And ultimately, you know, people have to make the decision for themselves to reach out for the hands, mm, right? Absolutely. You can't, you can't force, force it. Absolutely. It has to be a journey. It's their journey. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on their everybody's on their own journey and everybody walks their own path, but every 
single path is interconnected, right? We are all here together. Mm -hmm. We all share this reality and none of us are in it alone. None of us are born, none of us are born alone. You know, we're social creatures. We live and thrive in community with each other. And even having Green Beret Racing, you know, this community bringing these topics to the forefront, putting mental health on the pedestal that it deserves to be on, right? Mm -hmm. It, it, highlights, it emphasizes this conversation and it needs to be a conversation, right? We have to talk about these things because the way I, you know, I like to think about it in terms of everything is energy, right? Mm -hmm. The entire universe exists on the electromagnetic spectrum, (laughs) the waveform, if you will. And our, all of our emotions are energy in themselves too, right? Different hormones and chemicals happening in our brains. And when we take negative emotions like pain and grief and we sit on them, we compartmentalize them, we lock them in a box somewhere deep in our minds and we don't address them, we don't let them flow, it becomes like a still pool of water. Mm-hmm. And if you, know, you leave a still stagnant. pool of water stagnant for long enough, what does it accumulate? bacteria and algae and all sorts of other, you know, parasitic things. And it just sits there and it festers and it festers and it festers. Whereas when you find those outlets, whether it is in some kind of athletic, you know, racing competition um, or just, you know, mountaineering, very, it's a very individualized kind of endeavor um, or it's talking about it, talking about it professionally, talking about it with your family, with your friends, just having something, a way to let that energy flow, Mm -hmm. then that energy becomes more like a river, right? And which would you rather drink from? A still <laughs> pond or a river? Which is safer to drink from? Exactly. Yeah. It's well, always going to be the river. And I'm sure I'm sure there's times when you guys are out there and uh, you know everyone's out there racing and doing these competitions together. And I guarantee the co- conversations are flowing. And, and you you brought up a good point of you know talking about it and shadow. Uh, we I had an event last year. We'll do it again next year. It was called Shadow the Silence and it was all about suicide prevention. And but I think Shadow the Silence definitely. Isn't just about suicide. It's this is the main reason Taylor and Angie and I love this podcast so much is because we're having people in here like you that came in that dealt with trauma not only in the military but in in your personal life just like everybody else, and you're you're using a certain outlet to 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 help you with that. That's not only counseling. You're doing counseling too, but you, you know you're you're throwing yourself into this Green Beret racing thing, helping people, and you're you're competing within it too, and and having someone that's been through all this stuff like you telling these stories, I guarantee there's somebody out there listening right now that maybe has 10% a similar story than you do. And they're like, oh man, she's been through it too. You know, I tell my stories on here all the time. I always talk about you know, how I almost had my heart attack and Taylor's told his stories on here. And everybody, I, I encourage everybody that comes on here to tell their story um, because somebody out there has been through it and they think they're alone, but you're not. You're mm-hmm. not alone. And that's mm-hmm. why there are so many different nonprofit organizations out there. There's so many people like you out there that are out there trying to help holding that hand out for someone to grab. And, you know, Mount Carmel, you know, come in here, get a hold of Green Beret Racing, go out there. I mean, like I said, it, it, they do things that are not just for Green Berets and the idea is not just for Green Berets. Right. It's, it's a way to just help everybody. And that is what's the most important thing about this podcast is just telling everybody you're not alone path has been walked down a lot already and there's hands all the way down that path held out for you to come and get help so please just accept the help listeners accept the help and there's there's 
it's it's almost endless. Being in working for two new two nonprofit organizations, I've just the world has opened up to me when it comes to this of just pe- how many people that have been through this crap that want to help, and people that don't even know anything about they don't know anything about it and they want to help. So, I'm gonna come to my favorite part of the the uh, episode, uh, the recording of tell me a story. Tell me a story about you know your military career. About I mean, no, you, you've told some amazing stories today, and I don't know if we can beat the, 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 the Denali one. Um, but tell me a story about about that, that's going to connect to the listeners. Yeah. Okay. So to kind of keep it in tandem with what we've been talking about, yeah. this story just came to me um, as you were talking about this idea that you know you are not alone in your grief, right? This is a path that everybody has walked down or will walk down in their lives. Um, it is a 100% universe, universal faculty of human existence, grief and pain and suffering. Um, and one of the things that I have found in my own grief that helps is knowing that I'm, you know, that other people experience grief as well. And there's actually, there's a, a great... Um, anecdote in Buddhism about a woman who loses her son and she goes to the Buddha looking for help, you know, in her grief. And the Buddha tells her to go find a mustard seed from anyone in the village who has never experienced death before. And she knocks on everybody's doors and she talks to everybody in the village and she can't find anyone who has never experienced death before. So she comes to the Buddha and says, I don't have your mustard seed because there's nobody in the village who hasn't experienced this. And the Buddha says, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's a great yeah. story and and she and then and she has a moment of awakening of enlightenment where she realizes I'm not, I'm not alone this is a universal thing right and i think that it's very easy especially in our society to become uh solitude yeah S- sit by yourself and waller in your own self-pity or grief or however you want to say it. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I felt like that's where you're going with that. Yeah, (laughs) kind of inundated, right, by Mm -hmm. that solitude and isolated. um, Isolation, that's the word I was looking for. Right, right. And and this idea that nobody else understands my pain, right? (laughs) Which it seems like it's very normal. Yeah, definitely. You you never think that, you know, because your, your trauma is your trauma, it's hard to understand that somebody else is dealing with that same trauma because that was a specific situation, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, no one's dealt with this before. Mm-hmm. Well, it might not be exactly the same, but a lot of the times it's pretty dang close. <laughs> sure. And it's like, and this isn't, you know, none of this is to say that your, that your pain is not particular and unique mm-hmm. to you because it is, because yeah. there's only, you are the only you, right? Mm-hmm. And you experience your pain only the way that you're going to experience your pain. But it's, the feeling is universal, yes. right? And so um, I think, you know, especially when it comes to like worldly affairs um, and we can look out at a lot of what's going on around the world right now. And it's very easy to kind of blind ourselves in this. Well, you know, it's us versus them and Mm. it's our pain trumps their pain and they caused us suffering so we can cause them suffering in return. And that's going to solve all the problems. (laughs) And this actually just makes all of the problems way worse. Right. (laughs) And this this is this applies truthfully both to the individual interpersonal levels and to the collective scheme of things. Mm. Right. And so when I was in Afghanistan, we were out on mission. It was one of the last missions. that I was out on. We were, 
you know, on target, clearing these compounds of interest. And we were in the last compound and we had been rounding up the MAMs all night and carrying, you know, military aged males, military aged males. Yes. (laughs) Um, You know, essentially these, you know, these American soldiers with guns going into these villages and kidnapping men in the middle of the night. Right. And then just that's what we did. That's what we did. Yeah, that is that is what we did. And, you know, just in tow, we've got this like a line of (laughs) Mams <laughs> following <laughs> us all through the night. Um, we're in this compound, and the guys are getting, you know, they're inside. There's some of us pulling security. I'm, I'm the com cam. I'm just looking at the stars and shit or whatever. Bleep. Sorry, sorry. Bleep, bleep. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Taylor. <laughs> I'm the com cam. I'm just looking at the stars or whatever. Um, but uh, they're in and they're getting, they're pulling out this guy and there's a whole family, you know, they all have huge families. Kids are all over the place. And this probably nine-year-old kid comes running after, you know, whoever, I don't remember who it was, but or, yeah, you know, you know it's his dad. Um, and, he comes running out and he's he's screaming and he's distraught and he you know blah 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 and one of the guys on the team he made a joke just like ha 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 shut up kid like this Oof. is war blah blah and i was i don't know what kind of mood i was in that night but i just i got fed up and i turned around and i looked at him and i was like He's a freaking kid, yeah. man. Yeah. And we're kidnapping his father in the middle People of just a came bunch out in the of middle of the night with glowing eyes. Yeah, like. <laughs> with glowing eyes and giant guns, and you know Americans are much bigger than yeah. Afghans, um, yeah. and so it's like these giants are coming into this home in the middle mm-hmm. of the night and kidnapping this kid's father. Exactly, exactly. And I said, he's a kid. He doesn't understand what's going. He has no idea what's going on to yeah. him. What it looks like is we're kidnapping his father, and yeah. he doesn't know if he's going to see him again. Mm-hmm. And the guys were silent; like that, that really shut them up. And yeah. you know, we left the compound, got start heading to our exfil zone or whatever. And the medic turned around and gave me a fist bump and was like, "You know, Ange, I'm glad that you're here because awesome. you really keep things in perspective." <laughs> and I was awesome. like, "Well, I'm glad somebody can." You know, <laughs> um, but I think that you know that's. That story, just as a standalone story, really kind of encapsulates this idea that of empathy, right? Of compassion. And everything, yeah. Of recognizing the human mm-hmm. in each other. Absolutely. And like, yes, there are some bad people out there that bad do people bad, bad things. people are bad people. Yeah. That's what I was always saying. <laughs> but they are people they still. They are human beings. You know, they are I, still human they beings. They became that way because of something. Exactly. And each of us are born into this world under circumstances that we have no control over. Absolutely. None at all. And we are all conditioned by those circumstances to believe certain things about the world. And I think that, you know, America has this sort of like world police mentality of we're going to clean up all the bad guys around the world, (laughs) which is a noble intent and an important one, I think. Yeah. But when the benevolence of the intent is not met with benevolence indeed, then the intent falls short yeah. because the means don't meet the ends. That's and I think that's something that we we should learn out of our 20-year failed war yeah. in Afghanistan, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that we all feel too, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the SF community. So many people have spent cumulative years or a decade or more mm-hmm. in these zones, like fighting for these people, mm-hmm. fighting for their freedom. Deo Presley Bear is, I love the special forces motto, yeah. truly, because it is, it's profound to in every sense of the world. To free the oppressed. I mean, that is... 
that is the most noble intent mm -hmm. in the human landscape. But you can't free the oppressed one without empathy, <laughs> without empathy. Exactly. Because, you know, there is a way, arguably, you know, you can't become the oppressor yeah. when you're trying to free the it's oppressed. It's easy to do. It's really it's easy, easy to, to do. do. Right. And when you lack empathy and compassion, when you lack the grace and forgiveness to recognize these people as human beings, mm -hmm. then you lose all, you lose all honor of the intent in yeah. itself. You mind if I pitch in real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm about to show my soft side and say something I would never say in a team room, Paul. So don't, <laughs> don't repeat it. Um, but Andrew, I just related a lot with your story because that's actually why I got out of the military. Mm -hmm. uh, I did three deployments. Two of them were pretty rough. The non-rough one was just Ukraine. But like the emotional impact of that deployment was tough because what happened right after. So my first deployment, I was really young. I was in my early 20s, and I was not special forces. I was on the Army bomb squad, so EOD, mm -hmm. um, still kind of special operations realm. But I was there for 10 months, and I don't know. I thought it was cool back then, essentially. So similar stories, like just going into villages. We're, like, kicking kids around, capturing people, taking stuff. We were just invading a country, essentially. Bullying, yeah. But like back then, like we're almost brainwashed as soldiers and special Absolutely. operations. Like this is cool, and you're gonna go home. You're gonna brag about this, and you're gonna put a sticker on your car, and like you're applauded for doing bad things. So then I went to Ukraine, and I saw like a lot of the soft side of like the people who are struggling in Ukraine. And then 2021, we were closing down Afghanistan. Third Battalion, ACO. We were the last company there, and I had to do a lot of the. How do I word this? severance packages for a lot of the people that were working for us mm -hmm. and like grown men crying not understanding that was like tough. my paycheck's gone what do you mean here i am handing them like a pocket change for an american to last them a year until they can find a job and it was just yeah. really sad and like i got back i started pursuing therapy i was diagnosed with ptsd and have of course other bodily issues and had a hundred percent disability i got medically retired 100% for PTSD, but then also other things. And people started asking me, like, why did you get out? Like, was it just too hard? Like, you couldn't do it anymore? Like, now I'm weak. You know, I'm showing emotions. And I was like, you know what? My morals just changed. And I'm not 21 anymore. I'm not 25. I'm 31. And I want to bring good into this world. And I don't want to be told to, you know, be a better shooter and do this and be in shape so you can just get to the objective and shoot you know, I, I say innocent people, but like to them, they are innocent people. And we all have different beliefs. You can believe what you want to believe over in the Middle East. And I can believe what I want to believe in America. doesn't mean we have to fight over it. We can just be happy in our different sectors of this beautiful world. That's how I looked at it. And now I'm talking like this is a green beret and people are like, who the hell, who is this oh, guy? <laughs> Taylor, I have the same, I have the yeah. same exact sentiment. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think part of being a Green Beret especially is is you have to have that empathy. You have mm. to, I mean, you said free the oppressed and it's, you have to have that, that point of empathy of walking into a village and, and looking at it holistically and be like, okay, yes, there are bad guys here. Not everybody here is mm. bad. Let's try to figure out how to make this place better. Of course, in the end, you know, country small, smaller than the size of Texas, yeah. uh, it definitely wasn't aligning with what we were doing. And, and so we had to exit and that was, that was really hard. And I yeah, definitely sure. got to see a whole other side of Afghanistan when I got back and my phone's going off at three o'clock in the morning with interpreters that I had from way yeah. back in the day and trying to get people out. And it was, it was tough. Yeah, my It was wife. really, really hard. A lot of nights staying up 
crying. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I, I failed. Yeah. My WhatsApp know? was blowing up while I was watching all that on the news. Like mm-hmm. a dude I bought a rug from three days ago. Yeah. He's like, I'm lo- I've locked myself in my shop. They're on our base right now. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, not to make I had to like that. literally delete my WhatsApp because I couldn't emotionally deal with what I knew was going on a place I was in four days ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I'm still getting them today. I'm still yeah. getting them today. I had to, I, I can't. No, like, yeah. Taylor, I really appreciate you, you sharing that. Um, so, and can I say one more yeah, thing? But you know, like, I think that what you guys have just described is something that so many people, especially in Zoff, went through, especially mm-hmm. after the pullout of Afghanistan. And, you know, I read um, a book called Kabul by, uh, I forget their first names, Dunleavy and Hassan, though, um, army captain and another independent or er, Washington Post journalist, I think. But they, anyway, they, did essentially an investigative report on the disaster of the pullout in 2021 and what most people who got out of Afghanistan got out, not because of the state department or anything that the U S government did, but because of civilian networks, Mm -hmm. because of retired green berets and retired soft forces. I got got quite a few out who had contacts, you know, who were able to pull strings and, and get people out. And I think for so many of us who put, so much, you know, not maybe not our lives, but the lives of our friends or the lives of people that we knew or, you know, could have known or just our time, right? Mm-hmm. Like our our blood, sweat and tears go into this mission, go into this idea of freedom and peace. And we attach ourselves to it emotionally, right? And we form bonds, we make friends, we recognize the humanity in these people. And then in an instant, it feels like it was all for nothing, Nothing. right? And that's Mm -hmm. so hard and painful, not just on them, obviously, who are the ones dealing directly with this aftermath, but all of us now have to reconcile, well, what was this worth, you know? Why did this person that I knew and loved have to die for this cause? And all of it comes down to, none of those decisions that were made were our decisions, right? It comes Mm -hmm. down to, you know, our leaders, our our national leaders making these really poor choices and putting other people in terrible situations. And we end up having, being able to do very little about it, except Mm -hmm. to have to reconcile our own emotions with it. And I think that's something that, you know, I came to really admire and respect, especially in the soft community, is that almost everybody that I knew or came to know had this very deep-seated passion for right, right? They had this notion that there is good in this world and that good is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. And it is. It is. But it has to be fought for in the right way. And I think the aftermath of Afghanistan really showed us like, ooh, Maybe we need to I mean, rethink I, some things. I personally you know? think if we would have done it 10 years ago, did it 2021, it was going to be the same outcome. Sure. Like, sure. It really arguably. Was. Like it was, yeah. it, it was inevitable. I mean, well, cause we had made so many bonds and so many, so, so we've, we've funded a lot of that's there and, and yeah. all of a sudden next day it's gone and, yeah. and inevitably the Taliban were going to take back over. Like mm-hmm. that's just, it's just what it was. I mean, and so it's just, it was, but it's just so, so hard to watch and yeah. so hard to be a part of and so hard to ha- have all these people that have my phone number and, and my WhatsApp and, and everything that you just continually hear from over and over again. And it's just, I'm, I'm I repeat, I respond back to him. I got one right now and, and I'm doing everything I can, man. I, I don't have a lot of options, but I, I am doing what I can. Mm-hmm. So it's just tough. It's just yeah. tough. So. 
Because for the you know for the actual boots on the ground, the people, you guys, yeah. all of us, like for them, it really was about fighting for the people of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right? And not just Afghanistan, but talk about any war yeah, anywhere, right? Absolutely. It's it's about fighting people. for those people. But for the actual strategic decision makers who are in their comfy, cozy offices in Washington or wherever, you know, it's not about that. It becomes it. about politics. Yeah. It becomes about personal and political gain. How am I going to get elected? Power. (laughs) Yeah. So Angela, definitely, like I said, I want to thank you for just who you are, um, what you've been through um, and telling that story and being open about it. That's what this podcast is all about is just getting the stories out there. Um, And then also thank you for what you're doing with Green Beret Racing and and, uh, all the listeners out there. If you want to be involved with that, please go to greenberetracing.org, come by Mount Mount Carmel um, or email me at pwatson at mountcarmelcenter.org. Um, and you can email me that if you have any ideas for shows, if you want to be a guest on the show, uh, or you have ideas. Um, so please, uh, reach out to Mount Carmel. We're here for everybody. If you sign the dotted line, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks Paul. No, I really appreciate (laughs) you bringing me on. It's been a really great conversation and you know, these are really important topics and always happy to talk about them. And we have to keep, yeah, we have to continue to talk about them. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. You've been listening to The Veteran's Voice, presented by USAA. Veteran's Voice is a service of Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center and originates from the Optum Podcast Studio, located on the Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center campus in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The podcast channel is provided by Medicare Mentors. Computing Power is provided by Technology Partner Colorado Computer Support. Additional funding is provided by supporting partner, the Wirenut Home Services. Veterans Voice airs on flagship station KRDL News Radio Sundays at 7.30 a.m. The podcast publishes Saturday at 8 a.m. and is available on all your favorite podcast apps.